Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us back in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the second half of the show, we're going to be talking about a recent tragedy in Greece, a collision of trains there that resulted in multiple deaths. And we'll be talking about some of the economic factors behind that human tragedy. But first, we wanted to address another topic. And the data point there is 46.71 billion. That's $46.71 billion, and that is the amount of revenue earned by Nike, the footwear and sports apparel company. $5.1 billion of that revenue came solely from the Air Jordan line of sneakers. We were probably about $600 million of sales then, by about 1984, and uh, we really needed a boost, and we thought this young basketball player from North Carolina might be able to help us that way, and his name was Michael Jordan. And the origin of Nike's Air Jordan brand, together with the overall transformation of the sneaker market that came with it, is the subject of a brand new movie, Air, starring Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, that just came out in the United States. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. That seemed a good opportunity for us to dig into the economics of Nike and of sneakers more generally. So... Adam, Nike owes its success to its commitment to outsource manufacturing to low-wage countries. I remember this was the subject of a lot of protests when I was in college years ago. One doesn't hear so much about it these days, but I first wanted to ask, how exactly has domestic shoe manufacturing changed over time in the United States? I mean, is there even still a U.S. shoe manufacturing industry to speak of anymore? No longer, but but quite recently, the shoemaking industry was really quite a substantial sector of the U.S. economy. In the 1940s, a quarter of a million Americans were employed in the industry. Um, in 1980, only about half of the shoes that Americans wear were imported. Places like Lynn, Massachusetts were, well, at that point, just going out of business. But Lynn was the, the home of modern shoe industrial manufacture because key machinery that was invented there was decisive for the factory production of shoes. Um, it was really the kind of long run trends towards globalization that kick in hard in the early 70s and the sudden surge in the dollar as a result of the Volcker shock in the early 1980s that put paid to the industry. By 1990, there were still 76,000 people in shoe manufacturing in the US. Today, it's 12K. 
So, hmm. you know, it's really a, a tiny sector. Americans continue to consume, like, you know, by one count, I've seen 2.5 billion new pairs of shoes per annum. 2.5 billion? Uh, wait, that, wait, it seems that, crazy, doesn't it? That works out to 10 pairs of shoes per person? Can't, can't be right, but that's the number that's floating out there in the market research. It's supposed to be an $80 billion wow. dollar market. Um, 95 plus percent of that is is imported, um, of which China, until the tariff wars with Trump um, began, accounted for 65 percent. So where Americans tend to be employed is is in shoe retailing rather than in in, in that increasingly mm. as a sector under pressure from from internet uh, offerings. New Balance is, I think, the only sneaker company which still has any element of manufacturing in the US. Mm. Nike today employs 80,000 people. Only a third of those or so are in the US. It has a, probably about a million people working for it in shoe manufacturing, but they're overwhelmingly outside the US, uh, across the world, China, Vietnam, Indonesia. What drives this is is labor costs. Labor costs in the United States, You know, even if you were paying minimum wage, would be multiples of what you end up paying, what manufacturers pay in, in Asia, five, six times as much by some calculations. So of the shoe manufacturers that are left in the United States, the vast majority are suppliers to the US military. Um, so boots, essentially, and specialist military footwear are the kind of last area where there's any domestic production. Hmm. So as I mentioned, I mean, I recall a lot of protests around Nike's outsourcing of labor elsewhere in the world. And specifically, the object of criticism was they were reliant on sweatshops, basically abusive working conditions in various countries. Uh, the company seemed to deny this at first, but eventually invested in various corporate social responsibility measures, to use the kind of cliche term. Those are usually in capital letters, corporate social responsibility. And I wonder, have these measures been effective? Are there ways to find out? I mean, or does this really just amount to a kind of whitewashing? And if not, if this really is just a kind of whitewashing, are there any truly independent regulators and monitors aside from the efforts funded by corporations themselves? Yeah, so um, the story goes all the way back to the early 1990s. It was one really of the core celebre of the anti-globalization movement and labor activist Jeff Ballinger in 1991 published the first um, critical investigation of Nike's uh, footwear operations in an Indonesian factory where they were paying as little as 14 cents an hour. Life magazine then ran a, a famous photo of a little Pakistani kid, a Pakistani boy, sewing a, uh, a soccer ball, a football, um, ahead of one of the World Cups, I think it was, that really sort of scandalized global opinion. I mean, uh, leatherware is traditionally made in, in Pakistan, so but but the idea of, as it were, a global brand um, and a global celebration of sport being associated with this kind of child labor really just just uh, revolted people, made people indignate, indignant. The campaign rolled on through the 2000s um, and became something that really Nike couldn't avoid dealing with. It became such a sort of center of attention. So Corp and Nike at that point became a fairly 
advanced advocate for corporate social responsibility. It, it conducted rolling reviews of its factories. It established uh, codes of conduct. It created its own non-governmental organization called the Global Alliance for Workers and Communities that is supposed to provide, as it were, something like an independent assessment of what's happening. Um, it ordered its factories hundreds of times um, in an effort, as it were, to at least get a grip on uh, what was going on, because part of the, prob the corporation's problem, of course, is that is that he doesn't actually have detailed oversight of what happens in factories. There is an economics of not knowing, because the less you know, the better, in a sense, of what goes on. You just ask the contractor to provide mm. you with the best possible deal. Um, but all the way down to the immediate present, um, Nike is still struggling um, to demonstrate plausibly that it doesn't, in fact, engage in exploitative labor practices. In this supply chain in textiles, the gradient between the high-end you know, consumer at one end and the, and the uh, poor people who are working in the factories at the other is just structurally massive. It's a little bit like the cocoa chocolate story that we've, that we've, um, we've talked mm. about on other occasions. Um, as recently as 2021, a coalition of 200 unions and labor rights organizers were demanding that Nike uh, negotiate with them. The, the fundamental, I think, problem that remains in the Nike supply chain is that an organization like the Clean Clothes Campaign, which publishes the tailored wages report um, on wages in the textile sector, um, cannot show any evidence that at any point in any place in the supply chain, Nike can guarantee that the living wage is being paid to any of its workforce, right? They simply, in the end, cannot confirm positively uh, that fundamental element in the in the bargaining structure because the people they deal with, the subcontractors they deal with, are not in the business of necessarily, you know, socially responsible employment. They have tens of thousands of workers to choose from. They're competing with other small manufacturers, which are feeding uh, clothes into the and footwear into the supply chain. And so this is a company which, at that level, faces a structural problem. Its most recent issue is is in China where uh, the Chinese authorities have been feeding various types of forced uh, Uyghur labor, so from Xinjiang, um, internees, prisoners, essentially, from their repressive system in Xinjiang into the labor market in the rest of China. There are brokers, apparently, who will offer factories in Hunan, um, batches of, of Uyghur workers who then work under circumstances which are essentially those of a prison camp, even though they're no longer in Xinjiang. And again, Global clothing manufacturers, including including Nike, have found themselves unable to answer the question really of exactly who is working in their factories under what circumstances, and in an ad hoc way, is attempting to respond, um, you know, to one crisis after another. So I think there's no guarantees here. There's no independent authority on the outside. It's a running battle essentially between corporations which have a structural imperative to minimize their cost and various types of NGO activist or agent uh, organization which are trying to push back against that. So I do want to turn to the sneakers themselves and I wonder how shoes are different than they were 30 or 40 years ago which is the setting for this particular movie. I mean, what sort of investments have gone into shoes to improve the way they perform in that time? I mean, would it even be appropriate to think of sneakers themselves as a kind of technology? Or are the investments into shoes, even if they're functional, really more a matter of marketing or, or aesthetics? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, 
it's a fascinating story, this, the story of the sneaker, because the, the sneaker is itself the product of innovation, right? I mean, the, the defining feature of the sneaker, because you can creep quietly on it, as opposed to creaking along on the leather-soled shoe. So the sneaker is, in a sense, the, you know, from the start, this innovative um, product, because it, because it was a shoe made with a rubber sole rather than a leather sole. Um, the next step was so-called EVA soles, ethylene vinyl acetate copolymer, um, which is a plastic which is temperature resistant, tough, and extremely durable. And those are, as it were, on the soles of many modern sneakers. After that, then there's a TPU, which is a thermoplastic polyurethane. And then from there, we have the foam, and we have you know the gel soles, uh, A6, you know, gel sole, which was introduced, and then of course Nike. Air in 1978. Yes, so, so it is really a, a a sector in which we have seen really quite continuous innovation in clothing, and that's just talking about the soles. Once you get into the um, uh, once you get into the uppers, you know, from the 70s onwards, you're seeing natural fabrics um, and canvas and leather being replaced by various types of breathable um, material, mesh of various types. So I want to ask about the globalization of sneaker culture. We've talked about the manufacturing and production, but in terms about the consumer side of the sneaker culture, it seems like a lot relies on brands to appeal to consumers when we're talking about, you know, the domestic sneaker market, brands associated with athletes or other celebrities, etc. So how exactly do brands work across international cultures and international boundaries? I mean, do the associations elicited by individual brands have to become increasingly abstract as they become more international? I think fundamentally, you can't separate the history of the sneaker in the last half century anyway from the globalization of African-American mm. culture, right? I mean, it's essentially about the global popularity of the NBA and of rap culture. That's mm. what's driven this um, so you know the you know in sneaker historiography they 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 differentiate between you know first second and third wave and the the first wave is really the you know the original uh sportswear uh items and the second wave is 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 really michael jordan it's it's the the deal between nike and michael jordan in the mid 1980s that created for the first time this juggernaut of marketing by way of this black superstar in the nba and then from there onwards, it's as it were, the third phase is is thought to be as it were the essentially the digital era, the spreading of the celebrity of shoe and sports person by way of by way of the digital media. But as soon as you say that, you you realise that it's internally differentiated and quite complex. So take um, the samba, the iconic uh, soccer shoe, uh, football shoe. Um, which is on the one hand an early 80s icon of what's called casual culture in the UK. So the football, I mean, one's tempted to say football hooligan culture, but it was like the mods, a very high style form of hooliganism, very high uh, con high end consumption, brand focused, combined with a kind of workers' class association of masculinity and, and often combined with rather performative violence. On the other hand, that same shoe, is then celebrated by Run DMC in their famous song, My Adidas, right? So on the one hand, you have a shoe, which is itself a German celebration of Brazil, presumably, 
appropriated by British working class kids as part of football soccer culture, and on the other hand, by Run DMC in a you know a kind of foundational moment in American rap culture. So finally, Adam, I wanted to ask how much of Nike's operations these days are now devoted to treating sneakers as objects that aren't ever even worn at all. In other words, how aware is Nike that there's a market out there for sneakers as collectibles, investments, and precisely not as athletic footwear? Why well, it, it, it certainly has not escaped them. I think mean, that's that's very clear. I mean, the resale market for sneakers now is 10% of the total global market for sneakers. So we, it's estimated at about $6 billion and is expected to rise much more dramatically than the overall size of the market. So it's huge. Uh, it's driven by essentially the emergence of, you know, Influ- influencers in, in this space, right? The, the so-called sneakerhead, um, aficionado consumer of, of products. It's, you know, one along with a variety of other spheres, fashion, high-end cars, in which the world of social media now interacts in this incredible spiral with corporate marketing. And it's quite evident that for any, you know, important new release, I can't believe I'm quite saying this, but like important new release of sneakers, there is an immediate premium premium to be gained by the lucky consumers who gain access to the first release of the sneaker who can then resell it at, you know, multiples, quite routinely reselling it at, you know, a tenfold multiple over what they buy. So it's a bit like buying a Ferrari, right? If you can get on the list, as soon as you buy it, it goes up in value. It's it's a remarkable dimension, and it, it's it's fully transitioned into the high end culture space. So Sotheby's has an entire website devoted to auctions in sneakers. Uh, you can bid right now, uh, dear listeners, on you know shoes worn by Shaquille O'Neal, Stephen Curry, and Michael Jordan. Um, and in that market, in the ultra high end, so not just as it were particular shoes, but particular shoes worn by these superstars of of athletics, you know, the prices are, are truly mind bending. So the record for a long time was held by a pair of uh, Michael Jordan autographed game worn Air Jordans, which were which sold at Sotheby's in 2020 for $560,000. But then everything was blown out of the water by the entire Kanye West, you know, um, Grammy worn Nike Air, whatever they're called, Yeezys or something like that, which... Um, of which a prototype um, uh, model um, sold for $1.8 million, apparently, before the entire you know project went up in flames as a result of his outrageous anti-Semitic outbursts and you know the collapse of that entire branding project. I do have to ask, I know in previous conversations, I know that you're somewhat attuned to the car culture. Are you a sneakerhead at all, Adam, yourself? No, by no means. You know, I'm old enough to have been part of the very first wave. And uh, my mother was very puritanical about, she didn't think they were proper shoes and they were going to be bad for our feet and we'd end up walking funny or something like that. So we never, (laughs) I was not inducted to them as a kid. And then I guess it was never really part of my (laughs) fashion culture. I mean, I I go to the gym all the time, but I just wear, Hmm. you know, actually the fairly predictable brand that everyone seems to wear in the gym right now. Well, yeah. In any case, we do need to leave this conversation here for now. But when we come back from the break, we'll be talking about Greece and its trains.
Welcome back. The next data point is 57. That is the number of people who were killed in a head-on collision between two trains in Greece on February 28th, 2023. So just about a month ago. Just terrifying images coming out of Greece this morning. The two trains were on the same track before slamming into each other head on. Prosecutors are saying this is due to human error. So are they blaming this station? Demonstrators clash with police outside the headquarters of the company responsible for maintaining Greece's railways. Three days of national mourning. It is the deadliest train crash in Greek history. It has been a tragedy for the country, but there is a real economic dimension here. The uh, train unions had been warning that an accident like this may have been coming, given the amount of money that the Greek train system has been forced to save under various austerity measures in recent years. So we thought we'd dig into this particular tragedy and what it tells us about austerity. Adam, Greece's years of austerity clearly contributed to this deadly crash, as I mentioned, but through what mechanism exactly? I mean, who is responsible for translating the idea of austerity into catastrophic reductions in spending on train infrastructure that we've seen here? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really thorny question, and um, you know, the criminal cases are ongoing. We we shouldn't, I think, be you know over hasty or or kind of glib in in jumping to conclusions about exactly what happened in this case. Um, you know, people are you know facing horrendous criminal charges, and um, it's it's all I think still very much to be decided exactly what exactly what happened here. I think the starting point is that the railway system was always the stepchild of transport in in Greece. I mean, it's just not a good country for railways. It's too uh, mountainous, too hilly. Um, the Thessaloniki to Athens line um, is the main trunk line in the country uh, between the two biggest cities in the mainland. I actually rode this train line in the 1980s and don't remember it being exceptionally run down then but then you know it was the 1980s so everything was a bit tatty. i should say this is where um, the accident happened on this line yeah. this is where the accident happened yeah on this on this trunk line between uh, around larissa right is where is where it happened um there have been programs for modernization since the early since the early 2000s um a whole sequence of them um all to do with the train control system and signaling um, there was a first wave that was supposed to have happened between 2000 and 2006, and then another one that was supposed to have happened between 2007 and 2013. The story of these programs appears even before the austerity shock, which really began in earnest with the Greek debt crisis in 2010. Even before that happened, it was a story of you know programs that were not fully implemented and then replaced with new programs, which then were not fully implemented either. Um, as recently, literally as the last couple of weeks, the, the, the programs as old as 20 years ago were, were being litigated between, the, between Athens and the European Commission, the Europeans who had considerably contributed to actually supporting this modernization of Greek infrastructure. But yes, when the, when the crisis hits in 2010, the, the Greek chain system is in a parlous state. It has massive debts. Um, early on in the confrontation between the uh, Greek government and the IMF, one um, IMF official said, "Just you know, goddammit, we should just shut this system down, this railway system down. It's never going to pay for itself. Um, it's never going to work." Um, that's not what they did, and instead, what they did was to break it up, um, so that in 2016-17, the Greek operator, nationalised operator of the railway line, had to reboot the modernisation program that had 
made repeated false starts, you know, a decade earlier and had gone totally backwards since 2010. They restarted the program, had an entire contract in place, of course, because Greece doesn't have much railway engineering talent. That was with a French firm, Alstom, that was going to do the work. That program was then put off, I think, a grand total of seven times, such that literally last year, 2021, 2022, early this year, there were a, a, a barrage of complaints from the European side asking what on earth the Greeks had done with the money which Europe had provided for modernization, protests from the local trade union saying that the system wasn't safe. Um, and altogether, the conclusion that you know this system was dangerous, it was not up to speed, the trains were going too fast on a system which wasn't suited for it. And part of the privatization and austerity process since 2010 had been an absolutely massive reduction in personnel on the Greek railway system, which had 12,000 employees in 2010 and now has a staff numbering in the thousands. And they were scraping the barrel in terms of um, the people that were employed in these highly responsible roles. Uh, I think it's now emerged that the hapless station master who was running the show at Larissa was a porter who was retrained, given basic retraining, and put in charge of managing the flow of traffic on this segment in the line. So it's a, a hugely tangled mess um, in which a system that was already dysfunctional, even when it was being relatively amply funded, became even more so and then was divided up under the pressure of, of austerity such that... and this, and. This was no secret to anyone involved closely with the system that this had become an increasingly dangerous network. Yeah, I guess I, I do want to ask, to what extent does transportation infrastructure, like a train system, necessarily rely on a network of other public services, like security services, etc., to function at all? And does that undermine the idea of a fully privatized transportation system. And this got me wondering, like, how do trains in this sense compare with the deregulated airline system that we've talked about before? I mean, is it possible to imagine a deregulated train system along these lines? Well, I mean, we say deregulated airline system only by reference to its prior level of regulation, mm -hmm. which was absolutely intense. I mean, in practice, of course, the management of air traffic is intensely detailed. It has to be, right? Because otherwise, you know, the scale of disaster is unthinkable. I think in this case, it was much more elementary stuff, um, which was like line security. I mean, part of the reason why the system deteriorated as badly as it did when no new spending went in was not just natural wear and tear, but it was theft. So basically, you know, the, the expensive electronics, mm. the copper wire was basically stripped out. Um, this was the period of the great great commodities boom in global commodity markets in the early 2010s. And so, you know, thieves could earn good money. And then thieves in a desperate austerity impacted Greece could earn good money by by stripping out bits of the the precious infrastructure. Um, so at that level, part a central part of the problem was that the railway system was basically not capable of defending itself against um, vandalism and theft uh, on a truly large scale. And we see this in, in South Africa as well, for instance, the, the railway system mm. there and the electricity infrastructure there is, is made much more fragile as a result of the 
endless pilfering and theft that goes on. Each act, each individual act appears quite small, but the combined effect is to basically render the entire system inoperative. So I think, yes, there is a way in which these sorts of systemic industries are dependent on partnerships, on networks of interconnection. I don't know whether that necessarily means that they have to be within the public Hmm. sector. You can, after all, well imagine private sector contracts that would cover for the the range of contingencies. But um, certainly if the public side is being systematically starved of resources, which is the case in Greece, then the whole system will become more fragile. Yeah, again, just to emphasize that austerity, I guess, was was happening across the board. It wasn't just being imposed on the trains, but it was being imposed on the security services. It was being imposed macroeconomically, so people themselves were struggling across the labor market. So, yeah, I guess it depends on this broader network being in place as well economically. But I guess maybe to turn this question on its head a little bit, you know, you've mentioned there was plenty of theft and corruption within the existing public train system. So, I mean, was the mismanagement of Greece's train system and, you know, the corruption that was plaguing it itself somehow characteristic of a public system? I mean, this is where I kind of become cautious in wanting to overgeneralize. And I think we really need to understand, you know, as best we can, the specific details of this disaster, because one of the features of the entire Greek embroglio was a highly ideological language in which essentially market-orientated neoliberal commentators and experts parachuted in by way of the IMF or from the European Commission ruled on and judged a Greek state which was said to be accused of being essentially a you know, a, a, a toxic combination of Cold War socialism with, you know, the powerful influence of the Greek Socialist Party, PASOK, from the 1980s onwards, and clientelism, corruption. And so, you know, breaking this, you know, what was called like a Stalinist, Soviet-style state um, became part of the mission, both of conservative Greeks, who were appalled by the way in which their state had gone since the days of the colonels and you know, the hegemony of Greek conservatism after the civil war, after World War II. This is a society polarized by the Cold War. And so the um, these judgments about the functionality, dysfunctionality of the Greek state need to be held at arm's length and scrutinized very carefully as to, as to their ideological coloration. Um, th- that it was an inefficient and in many respects corrupt public service is undeniable. Like the, the failure to pay taxes on a large scale is a standing accusation against the the dysfunction of of Greek society and uh, notably its more privileged and affluent groups and their collusion with the Greek state, which just simply never enforced tax collection to the extent that one would would expect. We've spoken about problems of a similar type in the United States as well. Um, In this case, the protests about this were coming from inside government, inside the trade industry in the form of trade union protests, but also from the European side, another state apparatus, after all, that was engaged with the Greeks. So I'm kind of loath to, to label this as a, you know, a particular case of public sector failure. It's um, certainly a disaster of public-private cooperation, which clearly has not worked in this case at all. So to turn to Greece's current economic situation and how that relates to its train infrastructure, we've 
had a segment a long time ago, pretty early on in the podcast, about the fact that Greece can now borrow in international markets again at quite reasonable rates. And so I wonder, are they in a good position now to reinvest in their existing public infrastructure like the train system? Or is this the kind of thing where after years of deferred maintenance, after all that, those years of austerity, that is there now argument now for investing in new infrastructure instead? Or is Greece sort of caught between the two options? You know, austerity has cut it off from what existed before, but is now keeping other options also out of reach. I mean, I think if we focus on the transport question per se, you know, there's no backing away from the railway system. I mean, Greece is one of the countries in Europe which uses its railway system least, where we have the lowest rates of passenger traffic. The system is underdeveloped. It needs to expand, be developed, um, and and quite dramatically so if Greece is going to participate in the energy transition, um, which it must um, and ought to in really quite a prominent position given its you know natural endowments with sunshine. It should be a major producer of solar power uh, in Europe. Um, and you know, running an electrified railway system on the back of that would be an obvious component of an energy transition strategy. So I think you know, there's no way back. Um, the question really is how far in this case, and this sort of adds just to the fog around this disaster, um, it, it's not obvious that shortages of money were really the issue. Like mm. hundreds of six to 700 million euros at least have been made available for basic safety upgrades to the to the Greek system in in you know the last decade or so there's not actually a shortage of money for this system to be improved or at least raised to the level at which it would be safe um, so it is indeed true that Greece is actually on the on the brink of being upgraded to investment grade status which either tells you that Greek has you know achieved a miracle or that the standards of investment grade have been lowered which both both are true up to a up to a point um but um but i think i think the question here really is not so much money per se as to what happens with money in a system that is as dysfunctional as the as the greek system is so finally are there any broad lessons that this tragedy can teach us about austerity i mean setting aside the overall goals of the austerity program that Greece had, are there better ways of implementing it? Are there any examples of austerity that have been imposed well, austerity imposed from the outside, maybe with at least some self-conscious humility? The literature, I was looking at the literature on mortality and austerity, on disaster and austerity, and it's a really, it's a really, it's you know, it's it's actually a much more complicated story than I started out imagining. So, you know, there is there are some simple relationships which appear to hold, right? So, in recessions induced by austerity, you get a surge in mental illness and you get an increase in mortality as a result of suicide. It is true that if you squeeze health budgets, you get malfunction. And this was certainly something that happened in the Greek case. You also get the emigration of entire cohorts of young people to the rest of the world. And that's very difficult to avoid if you're going to squeeze down on the, on the health budget. But there are broader effects which are sort of countervailing um, because mortality in modern societies, in fact, in many situations, tends to rise with economic activity um, because people spend more on dangerous activities. And one of the more dangerous activities is driving cars. 
And so surges in economic growth, which tend to lead to increases in car and motorbike use, tend also to lead to surges in mortality. And there is a perverse way in which recessions and austerity actually hmm. cause us to slow down and mortality to go down. We saw this very dramatically during the 2020 COVID crisis, where mortality for everything other than COVID went down very dramatically as a result of people just staying at home and being unemployed. And so the picture overall is very complicated. Ultimately, I think, however, this particular instance fits within the space of cases where austerity weakens infrastructure, undermines our collective ability to maintain dangerous systems safely. And that's where, as it were, then these kind of risks build up. I mean, it's a terrible, nightmarish disaster for Greek society. It's not, however, clear that it represents a very telling summary of the overall impact of the crisis on Greece, which was terrible, but didn't generally take the form of this kind of lethal accident. Got it. Yeah. The tragedy is still ongoing in Greece, unfortunately. But yeah, this is a broader context to be thinking about it in. We do need to leave the conversation here for now, but we will be back next week. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.